Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks so much for being here with me today. It is Friday, TGI Friday, May the 15th. Got a good show lined up here for today. BC has announced a plan to start allowing kids back in the classroom starting on June 1st. I'll be talking a little bit about today's announcement and what things may look like starting next month when it comes to education. So I'll be doing that in just a little bit. Kamloops native and Blazers rookie Logan Stankoven will have to settle for second when it comes to the WHL's Rookie of the Year. Blazers play-by-play announcer John Keane will join me as well for a few minutes to talk about that and maybe the disappointment about coming in second. But uh, hey, when you're second in the Rookie of the Year voting at uh, 16 years old, well, I think you're doing okay. And to end things off, well, yesterday we hear how ICB BC is seeing a significant decrease in the number of collisions since this pandemic started. 43% reduction to be specific, but that is not going to mean savings for customers. BC Director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Chris Sims, will join me to close out the hour to talk about frustrations with, uh, you know, those savings really not being passed on. But to begin today's show, I wanted to discuss what is going on at Thompson Rivers University when it comes to its budget. And I am joined on the line now by the Vice President of Finance, Mr. Matt Milovic. Matt, how are you today? I'm good, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for asking. All right. So, of course, we're going through COVID-19, and I wanted to just sort of ask where things do stand right now when it comes to the TRU budget, because we last spoke on on April 9th, and actually I was chatting earlier with our morning host, and I was sure we talked in mid-March. That's how crazy that whole last seven weeks are. I can't even keep track of what date it is. But uh, last time we spoke, you know, we talked about that quarter-billion-dollar budget approximate that TRU was looking at, and just where have things gone in those last, uh, you know, six, five, six weeks here? Well, it's it's it, you know a lot has changed, and the the one thing that hasn't changed is is the uncertainty of, of where we might end up in in the fall. Um, so the university has been operating uh, it's an emergency operations center for oh, just over two months. Um, so we're we're keeping a close eye on things in terms of budget. Uh, our fall numbers are are actually a little bit better than than we expected and projected. So so that's the positive side. Uh, the downside of that, it's no indication of, of what could happen in, in the fall. Uh, so we have some deep concerns. Uh, obviously, we have fairly large international enrollments, uh, and there's a lot of uncertainty about uh, uh, students' willingness and abilities to travel. Um, so, again, we, we do have some concerns, and, and domestic is, is a little bit down as well. And I think because of the, the uncertainty, students wondering what to do if they should uh, come or not. So, I mean, what's the application volume? Like, you, you talked about enrollment specifically, but has applications in general changed at all? Maybe that's not necessarily a question for you. That's probably more the registrar's office. But at the same point, just wondering if you if you are aware of, you know, how many people are still interested or at least considering TRU as an option this fall? Yeah, well, our international students, uh, their applications are, are higher than they've ever been. Uh, but again, a lot of them started coming in uh, uh, prior to the COVID crisis. Uh, and domestic's about where we expected it. It's, it's about flat in terms of the applications. Uh, it's just the conversions. We're, we're concerned about how many of them were, are actually going to come. Now, when we talked last month, uh, like I said, we were talking about that $250 million approximate budget that was being presented as a preliminary budget. Uh, have that changed at all? Are you still moving forward with that, uh, that sort of figure in mind? Or, or, you know, I mean, I know you're trying to make adjustments on the fly, but just sort of where, where are you in terms of that overall figure? 
Yeah, the $250 million budget, that was the, the, the budget that the, the university had constructed uh, and was ready to move forward with just before the COVID crisis hit. And so what we took to our, our, our board was a provisional budget that was based on that uh, but basically, um, it, it, it suggested we would freeze all the hiring, obviously reduce travel, um, minimize discretionary spending. Um, so, uh, and I think we've had so we've seen some impacts of, of, of those measures um, uh, just in the in the late winter and early spring, uh, and we plan to present some of those results to the board. Um, so, from that perspective, every dollar that we save now uh, helps us uh, to, to weather the storm in, in, in the fall. Uh, so right now, still, our, our budget is a moving target. That the, the key is that we're spending less. So I guess when we're talking about some of the stuff that potentially would have happened this summer, I assume you're, you're, you're changing some things. I know when we talked about capital projects, uh, the, the nurses building, which uh, the actual name of it's not coming to me off the top of my head, but that was on schedule for completion this fall, right? That was pretty much something that had to get done. But outside of that, is there anything else that you've maybe looked at to possibly defer? Oh yeah, we, we've looked at deferring a, a number of, of projects. Uh, we were going to renovate our, our warehouse at 1274 McGill for our daycare and research. So that, that project is on hold. There was some civil work that we were, we were going to do there as well. Uh, a handful of projects all over the campus. So I think we, we deferred somewhere between eight to uh, $10 million worth of, of capital projects. Okay. Um, one of the things that I saw in in, um, in a recent letter here was just talk about um, conversations that have been had between Thompson Rivers University and uh, some of those groups that are representing uh, the employees that work at TRU, uh, a couple of different uh, um, admin- administrative uh, bodies in there. So I'm just curious, sort of, what's been the, those uh, conversations like? What has the message been between the two bodies as you sort of work to try to figure out what the heck work's going to look like come September? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and I have to say we we've been in contact with um, and in discussions with, with all of our employee groups. Uh, everybody understands the, the situation, um, and, and I have to say, and I, I'm very pleased that the, the conversation we've had with our employee groups have been have been very collegial and, and oriented to, to solving problems. Um, just to be upfront, we've had discussions about the possibilities of furloughs and and layoffs. Um, we're working through that. We've done a, a various scenario planning exercises. Um, so we're, we're in discussions with our employee groups. Um, you know, we want to be in a position in the fall where we can pivot either either to, to perhaps reducing staff if we have to or not if, if our numbers come in uh, better than expected. Um, so it, it's a tenuous time for, for everybody. We're obviously very concerned about the, our employees' welfare. Um, so, you know, it, it, these are very sensitive, important discussions. And, and like I said, I have to say I'm, I'm, I'm pleased by the, the, the tone of the discussions that we're having with our employee groups. How, how much of, of that potential is impacted by whether or not there is more in-class versus online learning, right? Like, I know when we look to September right now, there's probably a really good chance that a lot of it's going to be, uh, you know, online-based. Does that change uh, the way that the school will go about staffing? I would assume it probably would. It, it, it does to a, a certain degree. I mean, I, I think uh, that the primary measure for us in terms of what our work, uh, workforce is going to look like is, is really overall enrollment. Um, we've okay. been pretty successful in terms of, of remote working. And that's not to say that everybody's able to, to, to has enough to do or, or a full uh, 
workday at home, but some of that can be arranged and shifted. So really our, our focus is on what's the overall enrollment going to be. Uh, and I think we're well positioned to, to adapt with our workforce for both for remote learning and for an alternate delivery. When do you typically know exactly sort of what your enrollment numbers look like? Does that come pretty close to September? Yeah, it, it really does. Um, I think by, by about mid-August, we'll have some visibility on it. Certainly by September, we'll, we'll, by mid-September, we'll have a really strong sense of, of what this is going to look like. So um, it's pretty, pretty, it, the decisions that get made, they'll, they'll get made fairly quickly. But, you know, if, if it relates to um, our employee groups, uh, there's language in the collective agreement. We're very respectful of our collective agreements and, and we'll adhere to that and work with our employee groups to ensure we're doing the right thing by people. All right. Uh, I'll get you out of here on this, Matt. Uh, one of the other things that I saw being uh, put out there was just that there is this COVID-19 fund that now exists for TRU. Uh, just wondering if you could kind of explain what exactly that fund is and how it's being used. If, if you're talking about our, our emergency COVID yeah. fund, so this, this is this is internal to us, and basically, uh, we've set aside some money to respond to things that we we, we might want to do or invest in uh, to mitigate the impacts of COVID. So, for example, if there's more technology or licenses required for alternate or or um, different forms of delivery, we're prepared to invest in that. Obviously, we're going to have greater cleaning costs, perhaps more security costs. Etc. So, so that's the fund that that we have uh, set aside for that. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. That's pretty much all I have for you right now. I guess just um, you know, overall message to to the, to the people here of Kamloops. I know that, you know TRU is probably a, a pretty significant employer here in town. Uh, something that really contributes to the economy, and I'm sure that uh, you guys are going to do everything you can to, to you know to to keep life as as normal as possible, which is uh, next to impossible these days. But just I guess, do you have a message for the community, and just in terms of you know TRU is go, is going to be here, and um, you know we're going to do the best we can to provide. A, a higher education here in Kamloops. Absolutely, Jeff. I mean, you said it. TRU is going to be here. We have to plan and and uh, make contingencies for uh, to ensure the, the longevity of the institutions. And I would say, if students have uncertainty about the fall, they should go to the FAQs on our website or and arrange to speak with an advisor or recruiter. Um, we're going to ensure that the fall is as robust as it possibly can be while we work to keep all of our faculty, staff, and students safe, and I think that's paramount. And if I could offer one piece of advice, let's continue to listen to Bonnie Henry, wash your hands, and stay healthy. I will uh, do both those things as best I can. I've been washing my hands like crazy, but uh, the healthy part is not necessarily up to me, but I'll uh, do what I can, and, and I, I share the same message to you as well, Matt. Thanks so much for doing this. Fair enough. Thanks, Jeff. That was the Vice President of Finance for Thompson Rivers University, Matt Milovic. All right, so uh, now that we have enough, uh, a bit of an idea of what's going on when it comes to university here in Kamloops, well, what is, uh, what's going on when it comes to education for high school students? What about elementary school students? Well, there was an announcement earlier today about what's going on there, and June 1st is a pretty good target date to talk about. I'll get into all of that after this break, so please stick around, and the Jeff Andrea Show will be right back. to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Andreas Show, and thanks so much for joining me here on Friday. It's May the 15th. I hope you're all ready for a lovely Victoria Day long weekend. The weather forecast doesn't look overly promising, but it doesn't mean you still can't have 
a great time. All right, well, uh, B.C. Premier John Horgan and Education Minister Rob Fleming laid out the plan for how the province will start to resume school. Yes, kindergarten to grade 5 classrooms will be at a maximum of 50% capacity, and grade 6 to 12 will be at no more than 20%. I had spoke earlier in the week with officials from School District 73, and they were looking at May 25th as the possible restart date. That was the earliest that they were considering here earlier in the week. But today, the Premier gave us a little more clarification on uh, just exactly what date things will start to open back up. We're ready today to announce a gradual increase in returning students to classrooms. In-class teaching has been absent for the past two months, and it's time now, starting on uh, June 1st, for students to have the option to return to school on a part-time basis. Okay, so June 1st. It's nice to have that date to look towards, right? But as has been said throughout this whole process, it is not going to be mandated that kids go back to school. And it's our genuine desire to make sure that no one feels pressured to do this. I understand if parents or children are anxious about going back to classrooms, and I want to assure you that we would not be making these announcements today if we felt there was an undue risk to the health and well-being of the youngsters that are going into our schools or the, or the, the adults that teachers and support staff that we so much depend on to care for our children throughout the day and give them the tools to be full participants in our society as they grow and then graduate from high school. Now, this is not a long time for kids to be in school, right? I mean, June 1st is day one. That leaves maybe four weeks of in-class learning. If it is going to be done on a part-time schedule, of course, that, that means, uh, you know, kids will only get a couple of days throughout the course of a week, uh, and then another group will come in on different days, right? When we're talking about that 50% capacity for K-5 to and 20% capacity for uh, 6 to 12, it's clearly going to be a pretty spread-out schedule in terms of when kids will be allowed to actually be there. Now, as the Premier mentioned today, it will perhaps provide a little bit of a glimpse into what things may look like come the fall. These steps will pave the way, as I said, for a full start back in September. Many people will welcome this announcement today, and I know that uh, there are a number of young people that I uh, live in my neighborhood that are desperate to get back to real teachers rather than mom and dad or big sister and big brother. And this adjustment will take time, and the online program has been, I would argue, successful. Now, Minister of Education Rob Fleming, as I mentioned, was also in on today's newser, and he stated some obvious things that will be a little bit different. This won't be back to the way that school life was before the pandemic. There will be strict health and safety standards in place. Schools will look significantly different than before the pandemic. Our government has taken a cautious, measured approach. Students, educators, and staff should feel confident knowing we're taking every precaution to put their health and safety first. Fleming then went into detail about uh, why it is important to have some form of in-class instruction, right? It's not just about the fact that it's easier to learn in person, at least that's my own personal perspective. It's not just about having those social connections that are so important to development, but also those kids that perhaps need a little bit more attention, a little bit more instruction, right? That face-to-face -face learning is something that has been desperately needed for some individuals out there. It hasn't been easy. A lot of children are really missing uh, classroom time with their teachers and classmates. School's a place where kids learn how to connect with others. It's a place where they grow as people. And not having those places learn and grow has been especially hard for children who need extra support or for kids who find that school is their safe haven in their lives. 
Now, I know I myself, I would have really struggled with at-home learning, and Fleming again went on to discuss, you know, what things may look like and what those extra safety protocols will be because obviously it's important for kids to get back into the class in some way, shape, or form. But if they are going to be taking that step, well, proper safety measures need to be in place. Each Board of Education and Independent School are preparing detailed schedules and transportation plans to welcome students back. And for children of essential service workers, those who need extra support, they will continue to have access to school full-time. We will continue to make those accommodations available so we can keep our front lines and essential uh, supply chains uh, working and support those families who are working on behalf of British Columbians. Districts will be reviewing their available spaces in schools. They will adjust things like hallway flows. They will look at reducing the number and sizes of groups of kids congregating in common areas. There will be regular, rigorous cleaning schedule for high-contact surfaces things like doorknobs, washrooms, keyboards, and desks at least twice a day, while school buildings will have a deep cleaning daily. Students, educators, and staff will be required to clean their hands upon entering school property. There will be more hand sanitizing and cleaning stations available. And staff and students and parents must do a self-assessment daily for symptoms of COVID-19, influenza, the common cold. Any student or staff member with any symptoms, however mild, must stay home as that is the case in any workplace now right across British Columbia. Now, I think I talked about this before. I still have some concerns about how that health check, that daily health check is going to work. What exactly is it going to look like? I'm still not uh, totally sure. Uh, I'm hoping it is a lot more than just a, hey, how you doing? And hopefully, you know, some school officials can provide a little bit more detail on what exactly that screening process will look like here in the near future. Probably early next week, we'll get a little bit more details from our local school board on what's going to be happening here. Of course, they still have two weeks to figure this out. So there is a little bit of time. Not a ton of time, but a little bit of time to start going through that. And I know it's something that they have been looking at really since that restart plan was announced exactly sort of where things are going to be. Now, um, Fleming also did touch briefly just on, on when it comes to transportation for those kids, of course, who don't walk to school or get a ride from someone in their household. Uh, he just touched a little bit on what that, uh, you know, transit um, aspect of things is going to look like. Bus transportation will need to be implemented. Things like one student per seat, uh, unless children are from the same household, as well as plexiglass barriers to separate the bus driver. It's going to be very strict, and it needs to be. So there you have it. Students can go back into the classroom starting June 1 on a part-time basis. That's 50% capacity for K-5 to students and 20% capacity for grades 6 to 12. And for those looking for a little bit more information, well, you can tune in later this afternoon as president of the BC Teachers Federation, Terry Mooring, will be on NL Newsday with Brett Manier. She'll be on the show just after 5.30. So if you want to hear what's going on from the teacher's perspective and how they feel about what's going on here and what was announced here earlier today, well, you can listen to the NL Newsday. Again, Terry Mooring will be on with Brett Manier just after 5.30. All right, but uh, before I take a quick break, I did want to touch briefly on some Kamloops Blazer news and just get some quick reaction here from Blazers play-by-play -play announcer and our NL sports guy, John Keane, when it comes to the WHL's Rookie of the Year. John, thanks for uh, stepping in here. 
Yeah, no doubt there was uh, some newsworthy items, but I wish it was better news than what was out today. Yeah, okay, so we'll just kind of go through it here quickly. So Logan Stankoven was out for the WHL Rookie of the Year. He did end up finishing second to uh, Dylan Gunther of the Edmonton Oil Kings. So we'll just go over numbers here quickly. So Gunther put up 26 goals and 33 assists for 59 points to Stankoven's 29 goals, 19 assists, and 48 points. Um, they have 58 and 59 games played respectively. I feel like this award pretty much came down to assist totals. Yeah, well, it, it came down to a, a few things here, and, uh, you know, Logan had a great season, 29 goals. Uh, Dylan Gunther, you mentioned the 59 points, but but when you look at it here, you know, what's going to be a tiebreaker here? Well, sometimes the WHL likes to break these ties on sort of status, if you will, and taking nothing away from Logan Stankoven. He is the fifth overall pick in the 2018 WHL Bantam Draft. Dylan Gunther was the first overall pick. Uh, so he has sort of that uh, feather in his cap already. And, you know, sometimes it's nice to toe the line if you're the WHL, agree or disagree, kind of like, you know, here's a marquee guy we had pegged. And in lo and behold, the first year he's eligible in the WHL, he wins the rookie of the year. Yeah, and uh, Logan's also about uh, five weeks older. I don't know if that really matters at all either, <laughs> yeah. but sometimes, you know, people like to talk about those birthdays when it comes to these kinds of things as well. Mm -hmm. uh, just looking back to, I was kind of looking back on the history of this award and, you know, there seems to be a pretty wide range of what to expect in terms of point totals. Like you see a lot of guys getting it with uh, with about, you know, 50 so or so points. And then you see sometimes, you know, like in uh, Alexi Hepaniemi, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but he had great job, yeah. 86 job. points in 72 yeah. games. Like mm -hmm. there's, there's a pretty wide range of where this award can go. Um, so, I mean, was this sort of an expected season from, from your perspective heading into the year? Did you see the Rookie of the Year coming in with around that 50-point total? Well, the, the, the thing that I've liked about the WHL, what they've done with this Rookie of the Year, is that they've sort of... Uh, closed it out for players that are in their first year and and 16 if possible. So what right. we're seeing in the WHL is we, sometimes we see an import come over, right? Mm -hmm. Who's 19 years old or 18. They've already maybe played pro hockey. Like, uh, for example, Rudolf Balsers uh, in the WHL uh, came over as a 19-year-old playing pro hockey, scored 40 goals. You know, they, they don't like to... They want to award young first-year 16-year-old players. You could have made a great case for Michael Tepley, who is in uh, Winnipeg this year. He's a Chicago Black Blackhawks draft pick already, but it's his first year. So I like how the WHL, Jeff, has definitely said, okay, we're going to focus this award on 16, maybe a 17-year-old, and uh, and we'll see if we can decide it that way. Well, when we're talking about age, and I'll get you out of here on this, John, as we look ahead to the 2020-2021 season, if in fact it does get to go ahead, uh, you know, we're looking at Connor Bedard here as the first overall pick, right? He gets exceptional status to come into the WHL. I was looking through uh, sort of other players in the history of getting that exceptional status in other leagues. Sidney Crosby's won the award. Mm -hmm. um, we saw John Tavares won the award. Connor McDavid won the award. Even this year, Shane Knight won the award in the OHL. Is this pretty much... Uh, you know, it's going to be almost hard unless he like comes out and just totally flops to not give it to him. Yeah, oh, you still have to put in the work and you know, in yeah. injuries and things like that could be a factor. But the WHL, this has not come lately in the Western Hockey League. You mentioned first time this has ever happened. Uh, Matthew Savoy was a player that was highly touted out of Edmonton. They wanted exceptional status. The WHL and Hockey Canada said no. Savoy didn't really have a great season and then he took a really hard hit late in the year, which ended his season uh, and he was a real smaller 
type player. So Bedard is a quite smaller, slight player too that can fill in. So this is a great experiment to see where this goes. And you know, if Bedard has a good season. You know, I think we could see this more and more down the road. But uh, really, Hockey Canada and the WHL went out on a limb here to to get this exceptional status for the first time. Well, he's going to be a member of the Regina Pats, and hopefully, we get a chance to uh, see a little bit of him play at some point this upcoming season. Thanks so much, John. All right, thanks for having me on, Jeff. All right, that's Blazers play-by-play announcer John Keane. Of course, we're talking about Logan Stank, Foven, Blazers rookie, and uh, Kamloops native, finishing runner-up in the WHL's Rookie of the Year voting to uh, Dylan Gunther of the Edmonton Oil Kings. All right, well, let's take a quick break, and when I come back, I'm going to be talking about ICBC, and with the uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation not too happy to see savings not being passed on to consumers. I'll get into that after this, so please stick around. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back into the Jeff Andreas Show. Thanks for tuning in here with me on Friday. Hope you're all ready for a Victoria Day long weekend here. Uh, but before we do that, well, let's talk a little bit about ICBC. Yes, yesterday news came out from ICBC saying that crash claims have nearly been cut in half during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, actually, a 43% drop in clash, crash claims, which leads to an estimated savings of $158 million. But that doesn't mean we're going to be saving any money when it comes to our insurance costs as drivers. I'm joined on the line now by the BC Director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Chris Sims. Chris, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. All right, so let me just start with this. So I'm just kind of picturing you watching yesterday's newser when, uh, you know, these announcements were being made about sort of how ICBC has been impacted during the pandemic, and yet we're not going to be seeing any savings as a result. I'm just picturing your jaw a little bit on the floor as you're hearing this. Yes, and steam coming out of my ears enough to heat the dumpster fire itself. Not happy. Yeah, I mean, what were you expecting to hear? I mean, I, I, I'm assuming for myself anyway, when I hear that there has been a 43% decrease in the number of cl- crash claims that are being, um, you know, submitted. I mean, that just sounds like something that, uh, you know, should, should end up resulting in some positive news for, for us who are paying the premiums. Exactly. It should be a no-brainer that we as customers of ICBC, insurance policyholders, uh, should be getting a rebate right now because clash, crash claims are down, and so their costs are down. Many of us are stuck at home. A lot of us have either lost our jobs or we've seen a reduction in our wages. We can't work. We can't drive to work. So not only is money really tight right now for lots of British Columbians, we are at home and not using our vehicles nearly as much. So it stands to reason that we should be getting a discount, a rebate on our auto insurance. And we're, we're using other provinces' examples uh, for that. In, in other provinces where they have a, an ability to shop around and choose their own insurance, they're saving as much as 25% on their car insurance. And they're not needing to suddenly change their policy or anything. And in some cases, they didn't even need to ask for it. The insurance company just sent them a check in the mail or debited it back into their account. Money. Can you imagine? Yeah, it sounds all right to me, actually. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I guess when, when they were talking about, you know, how this is impacting their bottom line, right, when it comes to the fact that they are seeing a savings in related to, to crash uh, claims, but they are seeing a reduction, I guess, in money coming in because people are either canceling their insurance because they're not driving as much or have asked for a reduction in their insurance coverage. I guess what, is, what are your thoughts on that basically excuse, if you will, for why they cannot start paying out clients? 
that all of these other insurance companies are facing exactly the same challenges. Uh, lots of other people have either completely cancelled their insurance or drastically reduced it, or in some cases uh, the insurance companies have investments, as ICBC does as well, and they're suffering on their investments. They're all getting the same stuff. They're all getting the same challenges, but they're paying out to their customers. They're paying it back to their customers. Like, I'll just give you some examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, Allstate Canada is giving a 25% refund. Uh, Gore Mutual is providing 20% refund. And La Capitale, again, providing 20% refund. But that's backdated to April 1st. And in fact, I was speaking with one of my friends from Ontario last week. And out of the blue, because we were talking money and stuff, she said, oh, my, my insurance company gave me 15% rebate per month, dated three months. I didn't even need to ask for it. You should phone your provider. And I said, yeah, right. <laughs> We've got Monopoly out here in B.C. We can't shop around. So we're getting lots of calls like that. Yeah, so I guess what what is this proof to you here at this stage of the game? I'm sure it's a similar message we have heard many times when it comes to just how the general public feels about insurance, uh, or auto insurance specifically. I know not everyone necessarily has the same opinion, but a lot of no. people out there feel, you know, that there should not be this one, only one option when it comes to our basic car insurance. So what, what is the message here from, from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation point of view here in BC? Um, you know, what, what does this message right now that we saw yesterday, what does it tell you about the need for potentially more options? Well, that we absolutely need them. This really boils down to becoming the moral of the story, so to speak. Uh, so you hear from ticked-off clients and customers, so what they really are, saying, you know, I don't like this, I feel I'm being mistreated, I think I deserve a rebate, I'm a good driver, or I can't afford it right now, all these other things. And that leads to, so what? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Are you going to take your business elsewhere? You can't. You can't. If you're a BC driver, you absolutely must deal with ICBC. If they treat you well, if they treat you medium, if they treat you very poorly, you are stuck with them 100% of the time. And this, again, is one of our reasons why we say it shouldn't be a monopoly. There's no reason why we can't turn ICBC into a co-op, similar to a credit union, for the people who really like it. And some folks do like that form of collective insurance. That's fine. Let them keep it, but then open it up to full competition. Let the rest of us shop around, compare prices, and try to save some money. And I liken it to, uh, imagine a lot of folks get their big grocery shopping done today. I know I'm doing that too, or they do it on a Saturday. Imagine if you only had one grocery store chain in British Columbia, and the government owned it. No, No price comparing, no price matching, no coupons, no shopping around, no sales. Imagine what kind of service and product you'd be getting. That's what we're dealing with right now in car insurance. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I think the theory behind it is always a good theory, but it doesn't always work out the way that uh, people want it. I guess, uh, is there anything that uh, you're asking anyone to do when it comes to, um, you know, trying to change the system? I mean, it's not really something that is obviously going to happen overnight, but are you encouraging people to write letters or anything along those lines to try and see if, uh, you know, some changes can be made? Absolutely. It's one of the reasons why we do more of these visual stunts. Uh, very recently, we even projected the dumpster fire and how much money ICBC is losing. We had a big camera. We beamed it onto the side of ICBC's headquarters in North Vancouver. Uh, that was before COVID hit. And we've actually set an ICBC dumpster on fire and videotaped it. I have a huge uh, monopolist man, Baron von Fenderbender balloon. He's 30 feet tall, bigger than King Kong. We inflated him on the lawn of the legislature. And we do that to raise awareness in drivers' minds. And if they go to our website, taxpayer.com, they can sign our petition to open ICBC up to competition. And I mean this. 
I do think David Eby and Premier Horgan are reasonable people. They're smart. They seem to be quite responsive, especially right now. If you write the letters and you say, no, not good enough, I deserve a rebate and I want this much back, if we get enough British Columbians in their own words earnestly emailing those folks, I do think they will move. I do think they'll change. Well, Chris, uh, that pretty much wraps up our time, but thanks so much for uh, taking the time to come on and speak to me and, and discuss this issue. I'm sure there were a lot of people who were in the same boat yesterday when they were watching this saying, man, you guys are saving uh, $150-plus million, but I'm not going to save anything. So thanks so much for sharing this. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Have a good weekend. You as well. That was uh, BC Director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Chris Sims. And yeah, just yesterday, one more time, a 43% drop in cl crash claims means an estimated savings of $158 million, but more than 150,000 drivers either cancelled their insurance or reduced their coverage. And from that, ICBC stands to lose $283 million this year. So there's some numbers to put that into perspective. All right, well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. Enjoy your long weekend, and I'll be back here on Tuesday.